Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Um, I have a the honor yet again um, this week of having with me um, Dr. Kavita Chenayan. Um, you know, as um, we all know, we're doing uh, these mini series uh, focusing on burnout, uh, resilience, uh, success, um, and you know how to basically survive in a hostile environment, uh, which I think we uh, bring to work. Uh, you know ourselves um, and. Um, you know, I think what Kavita will share with us are incredible insights into mindfulness and meditation, uh, you know, bringing concepts to life uh, from the ancient uh, old text uh, of not only Hinduism, but, you know, just a, a text for mankind, uh, you know, just to answer the pivotal questions uh, that, um, you know, all of us at some point in our lives, you know, ask ourselves, you know, as to, you know, why are we here and what is the purpose of life? And, you know, how to find happiness. So Kavita, it is my uh, absolute pleasure and honor to have you on the show again. Thank you, Ankur. It was, it's, it's so wonderful to be able to talk with you and, and do this. And it's really an amazingly fun conversation. And hopefully all everybody who's listening to this will take away bits and pieces that are applicable to them. Uh, sure. No, uh, thank you for, uh, you know, arranging for time um, on weekends. I know we've been recording on weekends, so I, I thank you for doing that. Um, and, you know, You're welcome. sure. And I think we should start from where we left last time, which was, you know, we, we talked about, um, talked about burnout. We talked about, um, you know, competition at work. We talked about the sense of schadenfreude, you know, envy or, you know, jealousy um, and all these complex emotions we, we all face as professionals, uh, you know, at work. Uh, and then, you know, we ended the conversation, you know, saying that we will discuss more about success, you know, and what that means. So, you know, it's success means different um, things to different people, right? It's a, it's a very, uh, it's, a, it's a subjective word and it's got connotations which have completely different meaning for different people. So, you know, I just want to get insights into, you know, from someone who's very mindful and who practices meditation on a daily basis. You know, what, is, what does success mean to you? What is success for you? Um, that's such a good question, you know. And um, in my younger years and um, yeah, as a cardiologist, as a trainee and a, an early career cardiologist, success to me at the time meant... Um, you know, being more published, uh, doing well for my patients, 
um, you know, providing the best care that I could. And, and it all came at a very high cost to myself because, you know, um, I had role models and of, of what I thought was, you know, that's what success looked like. And that's how I want it to be. But um, over the years and, you know, with my own practice, um, success for me is really a, um, first of all, I don't even think about uh, success or failure. It's, it's not even something that even occurs to me anymore. But for me, um, I think a life well lived is one where we have opened to the, the entire spectrum of human experience and to be able to savor all of that in, in this um, absolute joyfulness, I think is, is really truly what success is. It, so it's not about acquiring anything, albeit in uh, the form of wealth or notoriety or certainly not papers or <laughs> positions and things like that, but it's really whether I'm savoring this moment as is with all of its different colors and textures, or am I worrying about something that doesn't exist because it's in the future or doesn't exist because it's in the past and dead. <laughs> so it's all about, you know, everybody talks about um, the present moment, but it's, there is no such thing as a present moment because by the time you say present moment, it's already gone. It's in the past. So it isn't really on a linear timeline at all. It is, it, it, the, the now is, is not a, is a, it's not a point in time. It's not a discrete point in time. It is this constant freshness of experience, which is what the now is. So, and, and so that's the answer you get from somebody who's a meditator rather than from a perspective of a cardiologist. Yes. Um, no, it's a, it's a fascinating answer. You know, it's, it's something which I've, which I, which I've learned from a very good friend. Uh, you know, it's something that, you know, she taught me, um, you know, last year. And, um, and, you know, I started realizing the power of just being in the moment, you know, it's something we, um, you know, at least, you know, I was not practicing at all. I mean, I, I would, I would ruminate, um, you know, more so plan for the future than ruminate in the past is, is how I, I've come to think of it. Um, you know, yeah. when I now think of it, you know, sort of the, the, the shift in my thought process that has occurred over this past year, um, there is a lot of power, uh, in just being in the moment. Right. And, and it's uh, as cliched as it may sound or, you know, just I'm, I'm saying cliched because it's become so popular in in social media or even in lay press. You know, it's just the there is a mindfulness movement going on. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm not sure whether uh, people really appreciate mindfulness as much as it is be as much as it is being talked about. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, obviously that does not relate to you because you, you are, you know, you are um, a very advanced meditator uh, and I'm just starting my journey uh, in, into meditation and mindfulness, you know, but, but for our audience or, you know, for our audience, the vast majority of which I, I feel are cardiologists, um, 
you know, either established cardiologists or cardiologists in training or, you know, residents or house staff or even fellows in training, how would you, how would, how would you practice mindfulness um, at work, you know, just a regular day at work? How would you bring that into existence as a, as a busy cardiologist who's trying to get through the day, uh, you know, seeing patients, trying to deliver the best care feasible? And, you know, I mean, all of us uh, at some point either have or will or are going through uh, tough emotions at work of, you know, not being able to salvage a patient or doing everything that we best possibly could and yet having uh, to face an outcome which we were not prepared for. Uh, and then having, yeah. to, uh, you know, having to then, you know, have, have tough conversations with families. I mean, how do you keep the, um, the epicenter of peace, um, you know, intact at work, uh, utilizing this concept of mindfulness? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think to answer that question, we should, um, we should just step back a little bit and talk about, you know, what, what we actually mean by mindfulness, because most people use that in, in the context of feeling good for now. You know, it's like saying, okay, go do, go do some yoga or go do some meditation and then calm yourself and come back. But, and although that is fine, uh, that doesn't lead to the kind of transformation that needs to happen that results in resilience. And um, because it's, it's, if we use mindfulness or meditation or any of these techniques as band-aids, that doesn't get to the root of the cause, right? It doesn't get to what is really fundamentally going on in the mind. And so um, if we look at, you know, what we mean by, you know, why, why is meditation or mindfulness transformative? Well, there are many reasons for this. But one, one reason is, you know, um, just looking at the brain, there are two distinct networks that, um, that are in play in the brain when in the waking state. And um, so when we are busy with a task, such as writing or talking to someone or paying attention to something, there is a distinct neurological network known as the task positive network, which is active. And when we are not engaged in a task, there is another network that becomes active, which is called the default mode. So you can imagine the default mode network is called default mode because that's what the brain switches to when it's not always engaged with something. And so if we look at our entire waking hours, very few of those hours are actually spent focusing on a task because constantly the mind is wandering. And when we say the mind is wandering, it means it's switching to the default mode network. And so the default mode network, if we, what does it do? So if, you, if we examine what the default mode network does, it is constantly circling around me. All my thoughts are going to be about me and it's all based in our early childhood and early life experiences and how, you know, what I think, what I feel, what I want, what I don't want. So it, it all centers around this 
you know, and it's not very distinct. These these thought patterns are not very distinct. They are remnants, fragments of thought and fragments of images, memories, and so on that are constantly going on in our internal landscape. So we keep switching back to this again and again. So, you know, people who start meditating, they say, well, I can't meditate because my mind is so busy. It's not that you know, your mind becomes busy when you start meditating. It's just that you become more aware of how active your brain actually is. You know, your mind actually is. So um, this this default mode network, and, and if we examine the activity of the default mode network, it's a constant um, foray into the past, into our past experiences. It could be what happened yesterday, or usually it's what happened years ago, which are just very vague and subtle kinds of impressions that are in in the mind or it is something we are projecting into the future i want this i don't want this i'm going to do it's like this worry slash anxiety that's always going on and it, it doesn't really of course qualify uh, you know for a, a clinical diagnosis of anxiety but it's just this rumination over the past or the future just as you were saying um you know about your own experience and that is true for all of us so when we say meditation a long-term committed meditation practice actually works on the default mode network and you know takes away all of those those remnants of thought and images and everything that goes on in there and quiets that it quiets the default mode network so that the mind becomes very quiet. So when you're not actively engaged in a task, there's nothing going on. There is nothing to be thinking about except being involved in what is happening currently. So when we say be in the present moment, it's impossible to be in the present moment if your default mode network is active. It's, it's impossible. So that's why we need this training with a, you know, with a regular meditation practice for that mind to become clear and and quiet. And so when we when we look at you know what causes stress, right? It is it's a combination of things. It is this beating up of ourselves, right? Which happens when when you know we are thinking that the outcome of our patient care should look like something, whether you're putting in a stent as an interventional cardiologist or I'm prescribing a medicine as a non-interventional cardiologist, we, we are wanting a particular outcome. And when, when things don't go our way, that's what causes stress because we think that's what it should look like. And we discussed last time that, and we are also influenced by you know all the trials and the data and things should go this way. And of course, things do go like that for the most part. But what we don't take into account is that it's not dependent on just you or me, right? None of these outcomes are just dependent on you or me. It's also dependent on what the patient's going to do, how they are going to be influenced, uh, what kind of medication they end up taking, uh, you know, the batch of medicines that, you know, if you keep uh, going to a 30,000 foot view, you'll see that we, you know, we feel like we are isolated in our decision-making, but it's not true like that at all. Even for us to have come across this patient, for them to have found us, so many things had to go on in a particular way for that to happen. And we forget that, you know? So we take ownership of this and we feel that 
you know, I'm the one that causes this patient to feel better or to not feel better when that is only partly true. And because it's a, it's a whole system and a whole, um, you know, unseen and unseen factors that bring in the patient and the doctor together, right? And we don't see that. We are only seeing this, so we take complete ownership of it. And so <laughs> one of the things, one of the things we should remember is if you're going to take credit for somebody's life, you're going to have to take the blame for their death. But mm -hmm. the, the, you know, rub is that we are responsible for neither. Yeah. So, <laughs> and so, you know, when people say I saved your life or it's so arrogant because that's not true at all. Right. In, in the grander scheme of things, first of all, it's not their time to go and, you just happen to have facilitated that. But we don't see these things. And we, uh, again, you know, just the, it's the lack of insight into how things are connected in a broader way. And that's because of this rumination with, because our default mode network is all centered around me. So does it make sense? So it's, it's just, you can see how, you know, because we are constantly focused on ourselves all the time, even when we are thinking about other people, most of the time, we are thinking how that relates to me, you know? And so most of our thoughts are about us. And it's not a flaw. This is human design. So we need to understand this is not a flaw. This is not somebody's fault. It's just how all of us are built. And so unless we cultivate, um, you know, a way to step back and look at our own uh, processes, we simply can't become resilient. And and resilience does not mean we become like stone walls, right? We don't become, sure. uh, you know, cut off from the world. It's not that. It's to be able to, uh, like, joyfully engage while still being, you know, detached from the outcome. Yes, you know, you've, you've explained this beautifully. Um, and, you know, I, we were talking when we were talking off the line, you know, uh, off record, you know, we were discussing um, how, you know, these thought processes or these principles are, are inherent to our upbringing, you know, back back in India, uh, because, yeah. you know, it's 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 just a way of life. And then you get transplanted to uh, an individualistic society like the United States, you know, where, um, you know, granted, I mean, many things are um, are, you know, well oiled and. You know things work, and uh, you know people uh, are well-intentioned, like you, like you discussed, or you know maybe Madhav discussed that in in the episode um, that I did with him. Um, yeah, you know, there are inherent biases, and and, and there will be. And then I, I really liked uh, how you put the two systems of thought processes together. I, you know, I'm not sure if, you know, I mean these are all central theories. Um, in, in psychology, but I, but I sort of read this in, in a book. I don't know if you've read this book. It's uh, the book is called Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, by, uh, no, I haven't read it. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, it's you know what you explained is is the exact uh, you know congruent um, you know concept of uh, the two systems that we. Uh, you'll actually enjoy reading this book a lot. It's it's by Dan Kahneman. He's a, a psychology professor. Um, or, uh -huh. or a professor emeritus at Harvard, or has been uh, a psychology professor uh, at Harvard. He's, I think he's, he's won, you know, it's, it's, the book is New York Times bestseller, and, and he's won uh, several accolades for the work. Uh, but it's, what he goes to is essentially what you discussed is uh, a default system, 
um, which all of us are working in or operating in. And then there is a more complex system. Uh, so anything that requires more analytical thinking or mathematical calculation, we will we will then shift our mind to system two. But system one is just a default system uh, that we work with. And um, it's funny, and you know, he's done several experiments on these, and he's actually shown this very scientifically, how it how the subconscious mind takes over the default system, and how the subconscious, yes. like not not even us knowing. I mean, he's, he's, he's given, I don't, I don't really remember the examples from the top of my head, but you know, when you're reading the book, uh, you sort of take a pause and, and you're like, wow, you know, th this can, this actually happens is, you know, higher subconscious, even though you're not consciously thinking of that thought will have um, a, a very crucial or a very significant role in how you think, you know, on a default base. Um, and you, you know, what mindfulness does is it tries to align these two systems together, which are yeah. otherwise very distant. So, so that you are constantly being mindful and aware, self-aware more than anything else um, yeah. of, of your surroundings. Um, and then, you know, I, what you also then discussed was, you know, sort of the me syndrome. Uh, I was recently listening to Robin Sharma. I don't know if you, if you know of him or if you follow him. Uh, or if you've read his work, he's the author who wrote The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, um, you know, another another great book. Um, and then he's come up with the 5 a.m. club, um, you know, for the listeners. I am not uh, a spokesperson for Robin Sharma. I just, you know, love his, I just love his work. I follow his work. I, I think he makes a lot of sense. Um, so, you know, he he describes this syndrome uh, as the 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 Ram syndrome. Uh, which, uh -huh. uh, you, you know, what, what that means is, uh, I mean, W-R-A-M, so world revolves around me syndrome. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, which, you know, we've seen uh, several examples of these, um, you know, we, I mean, I see it on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, particularly in, in my field of interventional cardiology, where, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, there are some pretty big egos that, you, you know, one has to, you know, deal with. Um, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know for, 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 for the field at large, I'm not, I'm not particularly talking about an institution or a person, but just the field yeah. at large. And, you know, that's the sense that even the non-invasive cardiologists get from us, um, you know, and I, I, I would like to apologize on behalf of <laughs> all of us, <laughs> you know, if that is even um, something that I should do. But you were saying something. Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say that... Um, you know, we have to acknowledge that certain fields attract certain, you know, personality types, you know, and I think in general, of course, there are always exceptions to every rule, but in but cardiology attracts a certain go-getter, um, kind of aggressive, uh, a little bit at least, uh, in at least aggressive in, in terms, in a good way. Um, mm -hmm you know, we, we worship that, you know, we don't want people to be sitting around or, you know, I've seen this also in various, um, various situations where, you know, if a cardiologist is relaxing and also having fun with, with their life, it's somehow looked down upon, you know, because you're supposed to be go-getting, right? You're supposed to be working nonstop because that's what defines you. And so we've created this impression, 
So, uh, and then we attract more of the same into the field, right? So, um, and I think, you know, with, with, with regard to egos, I think we all have this issue. It's just where we are on the spectrum yeah. and how self-aware we are of that. So, and again, I don't think it's a, it's a flaw per se, but I think it is, it's really human design. And, and when we are not self-aware, you know, we all have blind spots where we can't see our own flaws. Right. And this is why it's so, uh, it's so wonderful when we have somebody who can point that out to us in a kind and considerate way. And so we all operate through in from our blind spots and um and and so just it's just that some of us are more aware of these and and try to work through that and uh, some of us are not so and and that's what leads to the impression of inflated egos and so on and and I think there are plenty of inflated egos in non-invasive cardiology too um and in every field pretty much so I don't think it's a um, it's a flaw per se. I think it's just a matter of not being self-aware enough. Sure. You know, ego, ego can be a good thing. Um, you know, but it just turns out that for the vast majority, when it starts to play a role in conversations or, you know, in day-to-day lives of people and other professionals, it, it ends up being a bad, you know, character, uh, unfortunately, but you know, and again, this is something that I, I, I when I, I listened to Jay Shetty, who's, um, you know, as a public speaker and, a, uh, and an urban monk, you know, he, he says that when, you know, when ego loses, the soul wins, um, you know, which means that w- when someone challenges your ego, um, it could be hurtful, it could be negative, it could be construed as rude or, um, you know, you, you could take a hit. Uh, but you know, deep down, there's a lesson for the soul. Um, and I, you know, as easy as it may be to just say this or, you know, sort of go through the explanation, it's actually very hard, um, to, to practice. Yeah, it is. Um, so how, how have you, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if you've encountered this in your personal life or if you know of friends who've encountered, you know, such emotions, but if you, if you have, how, how would you, how have you dealt with them? Or how have you then mastered your mind or trained yourself to, you know, get the best out of that particular emotion or, or that particular feeling, you know, for you to be yeah. able to grow as a person, uh, you know, not yeah. only as a physician, but also as a person. I mean, you know, patients say things to us, which, which could be hurtful. Um, yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, it could challenge the ego. It really could. Um, so curious to, to learn uh, about this and your thoughts on this. You know, it's um, so it's it's such an important question, right? Because it's such a cause of stress. Yeah. When we talk about ego, right? It's it, for me, it is, and not for me, for, from the perspective of the the teachings that I, you know, have have really studied and and teach myself. It's really ego is not about. Um, you know what we consider ego is really a an overemphasis of something that is very it is prevalent which which is what i was talking about earlier which is the sense of ownership you know and it comes from really saying i am 
this or I am that or I I'm so wonderful and I'm so great or I'm not good enough. I am not worthy. Whether it's one way or the other, that's all part of the ego, right? Because it's it's really gaining satisfaction from the snippets of stuff that comes up from the default mode network. That's mm -hmm. what's making up the ego. Mm -hmm. And that's what gives rise to the sense of volition or uh, this ownership of the of what we do with our patients and with our clinical care and so on. So even, you know, we may also, you know, really label ourselves as being very compassionate, very kind or this or that, whatever it may be, that's, that's all really part of the ego, right? Mm -hmm. but, but what really helps for me and has helped me is to really understand that each of us is a product of our conditioning. And we we built this story of me based on our personal experiences, our genetic material, and what we've been taught by our our you know caregivers and society and so on. So what what really is important to understand is if if I grew up like you in your family and in, in your exact circumstance, I would be thinking like you. Mm -hmm. I don't do that because I grew up in mine. Right. Yeah. So you, the story of you, Ankur, is based on that particular linear timeline that you're on. And the story of me is based on my linear timeline. So you see, it's we are all merely products of our conditioning. So if mm -hmm. if you say something to me, it's a product of your conditioning, not mine. If I say something to you, it really is a product of my own self-awareness and where I am <laughs> and it has nothing to do with you. Yeah. You see? So uh, when patients or others say things to us, the first thing to understand is that we all do things because of who we are, not because of what anything else is. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we think the way we are, we do the things that we do because that's who we are. And, um, and so when patients say things to me or, and, and, you know, of course there are rare circumstances where, you know, I have to say, well, I have to end this relationship with this patient because it's not fruitful for either of us. It rarely does that happen where, you know, it's better for them to get care somewhere else and it's better for me to disengage from that. But other than that, you know, the, in, in whether it's in our personal intimate relationships or those with our colleagues or with our patients, it's really important to understand that in, in, a, in any interaction, we are essentially talking to ourselves. Because when I say I'm talking with you, I'm talking with my idea about you, right? And uh, it is only when we are mindful and the default mode network is at rest that I can truly interact with you as you. And for the most part, otherwise, it's one story talking to its own story of the other person. And this is a very, very, um, you know, this is a very subtle understanding that we arrive at, you know, once we've looked at ourselves over and over, over time, right? So, and, and, and what happens in this situation when we realize this is that there is a, the natural outcome of this is compassion. Mm -hmm. The natural outcome of this is understanding that uh, really I'm no different from anybody else. 
and that we are all just doing the best that we can. <laughs> and and so when we when we understand this, right, then the the internal conflict as well as external conflict just goes away, because mm-hmm. all external conflicts come from internal conflicts, right? And and so when when we understand that in any given situation, people are merely doing what they're programmed to do, then we condone behavior. It's not that we say, oh yeah, it's, it's okay for you to go harm other people. We're not saying that, but we understand why they're doing that. And so when we, when we act from a place of higher understanding, right, suddenly we are devoid of that reactivity and that negativity that comes from trying to correct somebody else's behavior. So for instance, if you're raising children, right? If we become very reactive and and all that, it, then, you know, what we convey to our child is not really necessarily always compassionate. So um, compassion is really based in seeing that I know you and I are really not different, you know? Mm-hmm. And in that, in that unity of, of understanding that actually we are the same, there is love and compassion and empathy and so it's not we don't need to tell a story about it i don't need to tell a story that i i am compassionate because of this and this i'm just compassionate period there's no need for a because there so um so this is the kind of stuff that happens with when we do this inner work right and so resilience you know when it comes to burnout it is burnout is a a syndrome that comes from not having this broader perspective of of human nature of our own minds of our own internal landscape and so we are in conflict with this or that and that, that's what causes this burnout right i want outcomes to be like this i want the system to not change i want them to not do this to me i it's it's a war you know and i've seen some uh, writings on burnout where there is it's almost like a um it's like a war against, in quotes, the system. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we are uh, the odds are stacked against us. I saw this in a headline from an email I got about burnout. The odds are stacked against us. I, I don't think so. I don't feel like that. Yes, of course, it's challenging. But, uh, you know, there are many changes and so on. And I'm not denying that at all. But when we come to this from a perspective of war, that can't possibly be you know, nourishing for our well-being. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, so, you know, excellent discussion. I, I really enjoyed um, as much I, as I've been learning, you know, from you uh, through these conversations. But uh, two, two central messages, you know, one is on compassion. And again, this is a quote that uh, I, I read from, you know, Jay Shetty, uh, you know, and, and the quote I, I think is a, is a fabulous quote in bringing compassion home, like defining compassion for, people who just don't understand what compassion is. And that is before putting someone in their place, put yourself in their place, right? It's a, it's, it's a very simple quote, uh, but it's like, it drives the point home. Um, um, so, you know, to me, that is compassion, you know, you know, before I, I decide to put someone in their place, I actually should do the mental exercise of putting myself in their place. And, you know, coming from a different, uh, like you said, you know, upbringing, environment, uh, you know, circumstances, you know, I don't know what they've 
been going through. So it's easy for me to just, um, you know, project, you know, what I think about them, you know, what is my idea about them, uh, not knowing, you know, where they're coming from. Um, and right. I, I think, exactly. yeah, and I think we do that. I mean, I, not that, again, I'm not talking about a particular individual or particular you know, group of people or institutions, but I think, you know, from a, the medical community at large, you know, does seem, seems to do that a lot or does that a lot, or, you know, at least that's my perception. I don't know if you agree. Um, you know, if you agree, let me know that way. I, I know that I'm, you know, at least perceiving <laughs> things the right way. Um, yeah. Um, I, I do agree, Ankur. And, and, the, and I think, you know, what happens is, I mean, think about our years of training and what it takes for us to be here. Right. And um, it, it's very easy to become jaded. And, yeah. and I think that that is the fundamental problem. It's because there is a disconnect. There is a, the, the, the rewards are not in proportion to the effort we put in. And regardless of what, the, what the, the lay community thinks about doctors, you know, um, a lot, you know, I have felt at various times in my career that it's really not worth it. You know, I, I don't know why I'm doing this. It's why am I killing myself, you know? Mm. And, um, and I'm sure all of us, you know, the, the, the kinds of things that we go through to, to succeed in, in medicine, in whatever way that we define success, you know, it, it takes a lot out of us. And so when we, by the time we come to a point where we feel like, okay, now I can take a breath. By then, you know, all of this happens in, in our adolescent years, our formative years. And so we never had the opportunity to be to become self-aware and to see how much we are self-defeating in our own thoughts and the way we interact with others. So I think it is, it's part of that. So I wish there would be more education on, um, on self-awareness of starting in, you know, in uh, primary school, because I think that's what is needed. We can't always keep learning about other things without ever learning about our own minds. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And so, you know, coming to my second central theme, you know, which was, you know, you, you, uh, you talked about alignment, right? And I, 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 I completely agree with you. I think aligning the body with the mind and the soul, you know, is, is very important because if any of these three components are misaligned or not aligned, uh, you know, there's going to be conflict. So, you know, and I think, you know, at least for me, you know, the purpose is to train the body to master the mind and to enrich the soul. Um, yeah. And, you know, we, we sort of, you know, as we, we foster exercising and, and we, we foster, uh, you know, um, you know, lean body mass um, and the just the just the external uh, training of the body. But you know what we seldom miss. You know, this is not this is not medicine or this is not you know medical school or medicine. This is society at large. I think we 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 often miss you know training the mind aspect and and enriching the soul yes. aspect. Uh, and you know, like you said, you know, all of us are in in different um, you know pit stops, if you will, in, in our journeys. Uh, toward yeah. toward aligning, you know, the the body with the mind and the soul. Um, so you know, 
So, which which brings me to my to my last question for for the second segment for the second segment of the mini series of this podcast. And again, you know, thank you for the time. I, I, each time, you know, we we have a chat, we learn so much. I learned so much from you. That's incredible. Uh, how how do you um, how do you practice that on a day to day basis? Like constant alignment of the mind, the body, and the soul. How do you do that as a cardio as a busy cardiologist? Um, and how do you foster that, you know, in your colleagues, in, in peers, you know, in patients, um, you know, in family, friends? How do you do that? Well, I think, you know, uh, for me, the answer has been meditation. Um, and, you know, I've been meditating for many, many years. And, and so what happens with a long-term committed meditation practice is that it just kind of spills over into your daily life, into your moment-to-moment way of thinking and being and interacting and and whether you're you know cooking or whether you're seeing patients or whether you know for me i'm i'm reading i'm a multimodality imager so i'm constantly reading this study or that study so or teaching or whatever it is that i'm doing you know it it's that it's that spilling over of the practice um into into that moment so it is just being there and doing that, and and there is nothing else going on. You know, when I'm doing one thing, I'm not thinking I should be doing something else. And when I'm doing that thing, I'm not thinking I should be doing that. So when I'm home, I'm home. I'm not thinking about work. When I'm at work, I don't think about anything else, you know? And so it is just being in whatever it is in that, in, you know, the, uh, one of my teachers, um, uh, you know, Swami Chinmayananda, um, he used to say, uh, be where your hands are. And so mm. I took that to heart very much. And so it's always about bringing the mind back to where my hands are and whatever it is I'm doing to bring my mind back to that, that here, you know, here, it's always here. It's always now. So yeah. <laughs> bringing, bringing, uh, everything back to this here is, is the practice. And, um, and so when you, when you live from, from that space, you know, it's like a, really a slow motion because there is no uh, like, you know, this like rushing from one thing to another. Even when I'm rushing physically from one thing to another, I don't feel like I am. You know, I don't feel rushed. And I think that is that is uh, that's something I've, I've uh, you know, um, it's not it's not specific or special to me. It's just what happens with um, with the long term cultivation of this self-awareness. You know, so you can be very busy, you can be in the middle of chaos and still be very still and stuff inside. And it's like being, you know, in the in the eye of a storm. That's that's really how that is. So everything is always calm inside. There is no conflict. And even when you are engaged in discussions and potentially um, what might be um, <laughs> perceived as uh, conflict, internally you're completely still. And so that's that's just something that is cultivated with, you know, enough interest and practice over time. Yeah, no, that's that's um, it's great. You know, I think uh, more so in, of course, cardiology, we deal with a lot of acute care. But, you know, as an interventional cardiologist, you know, if you can maintain calm and stillness within, you know, it's or it's the perfect environment you can create for yourself. Um, so, yes. uh, thank you for, 
uh, all the teaching and thank you for all the answers. I think they've been terrific. I hope the listenership finds them meaningful and useful and helpful. Um, and, um, you know, once again, thanks for taking the time on a weekend to do the segment with me. Um, I'm going to end the podcast now and, you know, I'm just going to give a sneak peek to the listenership uh, for the for the last segment of the series. And, you know, thank you for doing the series with, with us uh, at Parallax. Um, the, the concluding uh, segment or series, if you will, uh, is going to focus on self-care, uh, you know, which I think is, is very important. Again, um, you know, the audience comprises house staff, fellows in training, cardiologists, interventionalists, uh, you know, just physicians at large. And I think it's very important. It's, it's, it's a very important topic for the, the healthcare provider community and not only the physician community, but, you know, all healthcare providers who, who work in, in a healthcare environment. It's, it's very important. Self-care is very important because, you know, what we do could be very consuming. Um, and, and then, you know, you've also discussed how we'll talk about bringing this to, uh, to training, right? Yeah. 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 So yeah, we could talk, uh, we could it'll be more like a like a synopsis of everything we've discussed, and perhaps get into what, what needs to change in our field so we um, embody more of this uh, self awareness. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Kavita, and uh, I look forward to speaking with you soon. Thank you so much, Uncle Rikwitzman. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.